God's word with any believer. Uh, it's encouraging. It's encouraging to see that God's work is not just confined to Jonesboro, Arkansas, where I currently reside, uh, but it's also happening here in Horn Lake, Mississippi. But like Mike said, my name is Austin, my wife's Kristen, and my one-and-a-half-year-old is John. We live in Jonesboro, Arkansas, have for the last two years, as we were called by our denomination uh, to go plant uh, a campus ministry of the PCA on Arkansas State's campus. The Lord has done some great work, uh, and we're really excited to be there, but I'm also excited to be here this morning. And I will say, if you don't enjoy anything I have to say, please give me credit for risking my life and going over the scary bridges, apparently, that y'all have to get over to Memphis. So that has thrown a wrench in all of our summer travel plans, but I made it this morning, so I'm thankful to be here. As an RUF campus minister, we are sent out by our denomination to to the college campus to evangelize and disciple students. Those words, evangelism and discipleship, can really sound very official. They can make my job sound so important. But to be honest, evangelism and discipleship usually happen in really kind of boring, mundane ways. Sharing cups of coffee, sharing meals with students, talking about their story, sharing the mercies of Christ with them, and trying to figure out how this mercy of Jesus works its way into their story. Many assume, when they think about the college campus these days, that most college students are struggling with some really big questions. Maybe doubts about the Bible, they're questioning their faith because they have all these questions about God and whether He's good. Some assume that they might just be allured by the temptations of secular culture and the party lifestyle that's on college campuses. In my experience, sometimes that's true. But also in my experience, I find a lot of students that are struggling with other questions as well. One of the biggest hindrances to my students' faith are their relationships. Perhaps a roommate has went behind their back, gossiped about them, slandered their name. Perhaps a boyfriend or a girlfriend has cheated on them, and they don't know what Jesus or where Jesus was during these moments. Or perhaps they grew up in a broken, hurting, abusive home. And their question is, why did God allow that? And what does His Word have to say about that? To be honest, these are good questions. And these are questions that I know for a fact not just college students are asking. Because the Bible is clear that we live in a world that has fallen under sin. And one of the miseries of sin is that our relationships with one another have been fractured. And so we all bear, to some degree, the pain of being hurt in relationships. And where is God in all this? What do we do with our hurt? So let's go to God's Word together with Psalm 54. I'll read it for us. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Here's God's word. O oh God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer, and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. 
With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let me pray for us as we start our time together. Father in heaven, we know that you are already present among us. Sometimes our awareness of your presence flutters, flickers. We're not always certain that you're in the midst of us. By your word, by your spirit, would you remind us of your goodness today, of your presence, of your redeeming power through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I saw last week where y'all also looked at another psalm, Psalm 119, the famous longest psalm of the Bible, and I think y'all only did a short portion of that psalm. But if you notice this week, if you were if you were here last week or if you listened to it online, if you notice this week, the nature of the psalm, the substance of the psalm is radically different from Psalm 119. And this is one thing that I love about the psalms, that they're so different. They capture every circumstance, every situation we could possibly find ourselves in, Every, or whether you're in joyful worship, whether you have deep faith right now, whether you have crippling depression, or you're in utter despair, there's always a psalm to meet you there. This is a great comfort to me, and I hope you, because God's Word reminds us that God is also there in the midst of every circumstance, every season. And Psalm 54 meets us where David finds himself in a season of relational hurt. Perhaps some of you are there today. If you notice, I read the little pretext before Psalm 54, because sometimes the Psalms give us a, a context to help us interpret His Word. And, it, and the Psalm pretext says today that when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now the context of this Psalm happens in 1 Samuel 23. I know y'all are in 1 Samuel right now, but you haven't gotten to chapter 23, and I won't spoil the whole story for you. But in 1 Samuel 23, David finds himself on the run from the king Saul. David has been the appointed king by God. He has been anointed by God to eventually take the throne of God's people, Israel. But Saul, for the meantime, with desperation, with self-absorption, with pride, is clutching to his throne. And David is the biggest threat to his throne. And so not only is he trying to subvert David's plans to take the throne, he's actually actively trying to kill David. So David is wandering in the wildernesses of Israel, hiding in caves. And he finds himself in 1 Samuel 23 in this place called Ziph, with these people called the Ziphites. And if you don't know, because honestly I didn't know, that the Ziphites were also of the people of Judah. If you remember the story, David is of the tribe of Judah. So these aren't just David's Israelite friends. This is his family. These are his kinsmen. This is his tribe. These are his people. And yet, what we find out in 1 Samuel 23, and in this psalm here, the Ziphites, when they had the opportunity to protect David, they sold him out. They went and told Saul where exactly he was. Can you imagine the relational hurt? Your family, your friends, the people you grew up with, the faces you recognize, when the opportunity arises for them to protect you, they betray you. 
because it was more opportunistic for them. Where is God in all this? What does he have to say to our relational hurt? The tears we've cried, the abuses we endured, the hurts that we've borne on the account of people being sinful to us. We're going to look at three brief things in the psalm that help us process this, that God reveals to us. It's going to be reckoning, remembering, and responding. Those three points are on y'all's bulletin if you have one of those. So the first one is reckoning. To reckon with something means to come to grips with it. To consider the reality of it. It's the opposite of kind of ignoring something or putting it on the shelf or looking past it. It means to try to understand it as it truly is. And one of the main themes of all the Psalms is their utter fearlessness to reckon with things as they truly are. To not give some bright-eyed view of what the world is like. They actually show you what the world is like in all its brokenness, in all its mess. And in Psalm 54, we see David having to reckon with the fact that people have hurt him, that his family, his own tribe, has betrayed him. If you look at verse 3 of Psalm 54, you'll find that David identifies these people as strangers. I've already mentioned that these people were not strangers to David. He knew them. They were of his tribe. But what has made them strangers is that the character that they've revealed, David doesn't recognize it. David knows that they are foreign to him because they are not following God. It reminds me of the famous Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, where one of the last acts of Julius Caesar is his best friend, Brutus, when the opportunity arose to take power, stabbed him. And Julius Caesar, as his life is escaping him, looks at Brutus and says, Hey, too, Brute? You too? My best friend? It's an all-too-familiar moment that I'm sure many of you have had when someone you know has wronged you, and you have that thought to yourself, I don't even recognize you right now. Who are you? David continues to reckon with this situation, with these people who have wronged him, in verse 3, by saying, Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. He spares no punches here. He's brutally honest about his assessment of these people. It kind of reminds me about Paul's description of people that do not know God, people in sin, us, before the mercies of Christ come into our lives in Romans 1, verse 29 through 31. Look how brutally honest Paul is in Romans 1, 29 through 31. I'll read it for you. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless. And if you look at the last word of Romans 1, 31, the same word here we see in verse 3, ruthless, self-interested. What am I getting at here? Why make this connection? Well, I think it's important for us, as people who are trying to sit under God's word, trying to understand how to live in faithfulness to him in this world, that we too, just as David is having to do, have to reckon with the reality that when we encounter God's description of mankind and sin, it's not as pretty 
as we wish. Meaning that we can't view humanity and sin with naive optimism. That people, apart from God, have the capacity to do great harm. That person we work with, that person we live with, that person we care for and love, that person we even look at in the mirror. God's Word tells us that we must reckon with the reality is capable. they are capable of great harm. So knowing this, how does this change how we live? What do we do with all of this dark information? Uh, I'll illustrate it with a story. So growing up, occasionally, I, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, so we were a little closer to the beach than we are now in Jonesboro, and my family would occasionally go to the beach, and my dad loved to fish, and so occasionally he would get a guide to take us fishing in the bay. And one time we were out fishing in the bay, and all we were catching was this thing called a sail catfish. Now, Mike needs to show you the picture of the catfish he caught this summer. It's like 35 pounds. But sail catfish are different from the catfish Mike caught in Mississippi. Because sail catfish have this big fin on the back of their back that actually has a barb in it. That if the barb cuts you, the barb actually releases poison into you. So if you ever catch a catfish in the bay or in the sea, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Just don't touch it. Just cut the line. Because I worry about y'all trying to touch these things. Um, but the sail catfish, that barb will sting you, and it'll actually make you have to go to the ER to treat that poison. So as we were catching all these awful catfish, not catching what we really wanted, I asked the guide, hey, we're catching a bunch of these things. You're taking them off the hook. Do you ever get stung by these things? And he said, yeah. When you fish in the bay, it's inevitable. You're going to get stung. It's kind of the same thing as we try to live amongst a sinful people in a broken world and navigate relationships. It's inevitable. We're going to get stung. So if we're going to get stung, how do we then live? Well, I think we have two options. The first option would just to become self-protective. Become a turtle. Trying to navigate life Navigate this culture and this world and our relationships by trying our best not to get hurt. So whenever a messy situation comes up, whenever there are people that you know have the capacity to hurt you or maybe ask more of you than you want, you retreat. You self-protect. But as the Christian, I hate to break it to you, we don't have the option to live in self-protection. Christ has called us by His grace, He has equipped us with the gospel, and He has commissioned us and empowered us with the Holy Spirit not to be self-protective, but to be self-giving. To give ourselves in love to a sinful people in a sinful world. So our second option, instead of becoming turtles, I think is the better option. And I think God's Word would agree with me. It's to become wise. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is preparing and equipping his disciples because he's about to send them out to preach the gospel. But he gives them this one last word of parting wisdom. He says in Matthew 10, 16, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus pulls no punches too. He wants them to reckon with the reality 
that it's inevitable. They will get stung. But being wise in our relationship doesn't mean we go to self-defense, to be self-protective. It means we hold intention, our calling, to go out into a really dangerous and sinful world where hurt is inevitable, but at the same time, we have to hold that intention with we're called to do it. We're called to do it. We have no other option. But you will get stunned. It's inevitable. So where's the hope in this? Well, the hope is, and I think David's hope here, is that though he is vulnerable, though he is hurting, he's not alone. And he does he he remembers this hope by recalling some things. So this is our second point, remembering. Remembering. I mentioned earlier that one of the biggest hindrances to my students' faith is they have to come to grips with the relational hurt that they've experienced. And one of the temptations I find my students dealing with as they process their hurt is that there is a temptation to project their hurt onto God. Meaning, they want to make Him responsible, saying, God, you allowed this. That means you're responsible for it. So a lot of my students end up not liking God because they want to blame Him for His hurt. Here we see David fighting those urges by remembering two specific things. The first one is God's name. The second one is God's power. First, we see God's name. If you look at the first line of the song, David starts off with, Oh God, save me by your name. I find that an interesting move by David. Save me by your name. What does that even mean? Well, in the Old Testament especially, there is great importance and significance in God's name. To you, a name might seem pretty insignificant. You all know, some of you probably have already forgotten, that my name is Austin. But that doesn't tell you anything. You don't know my character. You don't know my trustworthiness. You don't know how powerful I am or how I might be able to intervene for you. My name is pretty meaningless to you. It's just an identifier. It's not so with God's name. Because God, in the Old Testament especially, always attaches his name with his character. When God told someone his name or when they called upon the name of God, it was always calling upon his character as well. He's saying, this is who I am, and this is what you can expect from me. This is who I am, and I can't be anybody else towards you. The most famous passage, really the high point of the Old Testament, where we see this truth is Exodus 34, verse 5 through 7, where God reveals his name by revealing the fullness of his character. Here's the scene. I'll read it for you. Exodus 34, verse 5 and 7. Verse 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God keeping steadfast love for thousands. Or the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is who David is thinking about when he calls upon the name of the Lord. As he tries to remember that even in his hurt, God has not changed. 
He remembers God's faithfulness to him. But he also remembers God's power. And that's why God's name also reminds him of God's power. Look at verse 1 again. He says, Save me by your name and vindicate me by your might or your power. So part of the temptation that we have in our sin, when we experience hurt, we want to project that pain on God. But there's another temptation as well. The temptation to feel like we're alone. And that nobody's going to advocate for us. And if God, or if nobody's going to advocate for us, if nobody's going to make this right, then I need to handle it myself. I need to execute justice. I need to hurt the ones who have hurt me. That's a common line we hear a lot, or I hear a lot, that makes a lot of sense to me, that hurt people hurt people. It happens all the time. We know that very well. But David, remembering God's name and his power, reminds him that his hurt doesn't have to lead to the hurt of other people. That he is not alone in his pain, and he also doesn't have to fight his own battles. That's the great truth that we see about God in Psalm 54. That God is with us in our pain, but he's also going to do something about it. Look at verse 5. As David hopes, he says, He will return evil to my enemies. For me, this gives me great comfort. And that might sound weird. But if you think about it, if you think about all your hurt, perhaps even talking about this subject has brought back very visceral, real memories of the way people have betrayed you and hurt you. This psalm reminds us not only that God's with you, but that he will do something about it. That your hurt will not be ignored, but will also, it will actually be made right. Every insult, every tear, every scar, every betrayal will one day be vindicated through the justice of God. But however, in the meantime, this does leave us in a difficult place. Because we're not allowed to take vengeance upon ourselves. That means we have to patiently wait for God to heal our hurts. What do we do in the meantime? Well, Romans 12, 19 is pretty clear that we're not allowed to avenge ourselves. Paul tells us to leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So as we endure... What agency do we have in our hurt? Meaning, what are we supposed? To, how do we handle it? What do we do about it? Which brings me to my last point: responding. This was probably the hardest point for me to really understand as I was writing this and considering this psalm. And I want y'all to wrestle wrestle with that reality too. And maybe it's just because I'm not sanctified enough. I'm not having grown enough with Jesus. But what, look at the way that David ends this prayer of pain. He ends it with praise. Verse 6. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Why? Verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The reason I find this so strange is because... In the immediate context, what David is saying here, what David is praying here, isn't true. 
Saul is still pursuing him. 1 Samuel 23 doesn't end by the Lord smiting all his enemies, washing them away, giving him the throne, and David triumphing in victory. 1 Samuel 23 ends with David continuing to hide, continuing to process the betrayal. So what gives? Why is he able to praise even in the midst of persevering in his hurt? Well, I think for me personally, it was hard for me to process because so often my praise of God is wrapped up in what God has done for me. It's wrapped up in the past. And that's not bad. It's, it's great to praise God for material blessings, for family, for provision, for the cross he has taken us, for the forgiveness of sins he has given us. It's great to praise God for what he's done in the past. But this psalm also calls us and reminds us that our response to our hurt is evoking a response that can praise God for what he will do, not just what he's done. We praise because we have a sure hope. A hope that has resurrected from the dead. And as sure as his resurrection is in Christ, as sure as our hope is. Meaning because he lives, what is dead will be made alive. Because he lives, what is broken will be repaired. Because he lives, what has been hurt will be healed. As, a, as the prophet Isaiah said, a bruised reed he will not break, a flickering wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Our relational hope, even as we persevere in it today, as we try to process it, as we struggle with it, is not without a resurrection hope. All that has been wrong will be made right. As we end our time together, I want us to end very practically. Because there's an interesting ending to the story in 1 Samuel 23. As I noted, David doesn't get his chance, or David really doesn't have victory over his enemies in 1 Samuel 23. But right after 1 Samuel 23, right after he escapes the grip of Saul, an opportunity arises in 1 Samuel 24 for David actually to execute justice. He finds himself in another cave, and it's a kind of weird and funny story. It's okay to laugh at the Bible sometimes. But where Saul comes into a cave as he's pursuing David to go to the bathroom, says to relieve himself, And Saul has no idea that David is in this cave. And none of Saul's army is around him. And David sees Saul, but Saul doesn't see David. And David has the opportunity right there and then to vindicate his hurt. To seek justice for it. To execute it. And yet he relents. He doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. He's patient. He's faithful. He waits for God to execute justice. The grace that David shows Saul reminds me of the grace that Jesus shows us. On the cross, he had every chance as they were asking him to come down from the cross to vindicate himself, to pursue justice against those who have sinned against him. And yet, by his mercy, the sin, our sin that held him there, he endured. 
graciously. So as we as we navigate life with our stings, with our hurts, with our betrayals that we all bear as the miseries of sin have allowed, we do not do so without hope. But also as the character of Christ through His Spirit works its way into our heart, we also might become agents of grace like He was for us. Not seeking revenge, not returning our hurt for more hurt, but showing kindness, showing mercy, showing grace where it's undeserved as we embody Jesus to the world. Where hurting people can actually heal. Let's pray to God for Him to allow this to happen to us. Father, we thank you for your mercy. That you did not return evil for evil. But you returned our evil with grace. With taking upon yourself the justice of God. So that we, those who have hurt you, might be a part of your healing. Father, as we bear the pains of what it means to live in a fallen world and all the fractures of relationships that we find ourselves in, would you give us the grace to navigate these well without resigning to despair but giving us a resurrection hope? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.